Hey everybody and welcome to There and Back Again from Point North Media. I'm Alistair Stevens. Today, in our 43rd session, we are taking the road to Isengard and we're preparing ourselves, actually preparing ourselves at some length for the end of book three, for the halfway point of this entire novel in next week's discussion. So a lot of preparation, the, the intake of breath here in what is actually a fairly brief chapter and what will be, I assure you, a fairly brief conversation. Before we get started today, though... A quick word about Point North Media and about the whole apparatus that makes this thing possible. Because as you know, everything that I do here at Point North is made possible by you, by my generous, wonderful, amazing listeners who pledge their support to help me keep the lights on, to keep producing podcasts, to pay those pesky bills that I have to pay from time to time. The majority of that support, the vast majority of that support, comes to me through Patreon at patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. This week, Patreon have announced a fundamental change to the way that they are handling fees, the way that they are processing fees. As was of old, I would pay the fees. Basically, you guys would, would pledge a dollar or two dollars or five dollars or ten or however much you wanted to pledge, and that money would come to me, and then Patreon would take their cut to pay for their servers and to make a profit, because they too are, after all, a business, and also to pay, like, credit card transaction fees and all of that. But that would be a completely transparent process to you, the patron. You would pledge a dollar, and a dollar would come out of your account, and it would go to me and we, between myself and Patreon, we would handle all of that. We would take care of all of that business. Patreon has now changed that model and they are moving the payment of fees from the creator to the individual patron. This means that instead of receiving 80 to 85% of your pledges, as I used to do, I will now receive 95% of your pledges, which is great, except that you guys are going to be bearing the weight of the fee that is attached to that. And that fee is going to be disproportionately large for those of you who pledge a small amount. If you used to pledge a $1, uh, if you used to maintain a $1 pledge for Point North Media, Patreon will now start charging you $1.39. If you pledge $2, you're going to be charged $2.41. If you pledge $5, you're going to be charged a nice round $5.50. That may not seem like a lot. I understand that we're talking about, you know, fractions of a dollar here, but it really does add up. And I and many other creators are uncomfortable with patrons uh, with patreon's decision to shift the fee taking focus from us to you this does not seem to be quite in the spirit of their original intent we are in an ongoing dialogue to see if we can't either switch back or allow individual creators to alter how we take fees and and how we process that stuff I just wanted to let you guys know that you're going to get emails from Patreon pretty soon, and you may not be happy about it, and I want you to know that I'm not happy about it either, actually. Um, but all of that aside, your support is necessary to continue what I'm doing here at Point North for all of the many creators who are funded through Patreon. And, and if there is a lesson to take from this, it is simply that we ought not to be reliant on one particular service. The reason that Patreon is taking this action is because they are about to come under enormous pressure from a new service called Drip, which has been started by Kickstarter, which is basically going to be Patreon, except it has the Kickstarter name attached to it, and that's a major threat. So Patreon is doing this so that they can appeal to more creators. I understand the logic. I understand the business argument. I'm just not wild about it. All of this is to say. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for your generosity. Thank you so much for making all of this possible. I hope that you will continue to support Point North. If you don't, if you can't, I completely understand. These are austere times. You know, 2017 has been a difficult year for, oh, let me check. Yep, everyone. Everyone has had a difficult year in 2017. And I completely understand if you have to draw back on your support of Point North or your support of other creators. I completely understand that it has nothing to do with the desire to support. Oftentimes, there is just a limit to the practicality of the thing. You can also support Point North 
directly via PayPal at paypal, uh, paypal.me slash pointnorthmedia or via the new service coffee, ko-fi.com slash pointnorthmedia. The links to both of those are in the show notes. And those are both simple one-shot donations. I know that a lot of you don't want to set up a recurring payment, which you'll forget about and just, you know, will be a drain on your bank account every month. And who knows what the tides of fortune and fate will bring you. But there are other ways of supporting Point North. And of course, every dollar that you pledge, every dollar that you donate, every dollar that you give me goes direct into the podcast making machine which i have which is just out of shot actually it's just a giant machine that takes dollar bills and turns them into podcasts so uh, that's that's just out of the shot right now but uh that's the apparatus upon which we depend here at point north media and i just want to tell you all right from the jump that i am enormously grateful for your support it has been a wild year here at point north media and i'm looking forward to bigger and better things let's get right into it and and uh yeah a lot of discussion here of course about uh about the patreon thing yeah it's just it's just, yes, as Joseph says, a great excuse to increase your donation on Patreon. More efficient. Yes, I think Patreon themselves have been making that argument. Yes. Uh, they also handled, they fumbled the release of this information because they told all of the creators yesterday. We all knew yesterday, and they're telling the public today as of this recording, which is, hey, not the way to do it when you're talking about a change to the way that the public interacts with Patreon. Anyway, all of that is behind the scenes business. That's not what we're here for. If you want to talk more about that, head on over to Twitter. I will happily talk to you about it on Twitter, twitter.com slash paperbullets for my personal account. Let's get into our discussion of Chapter 8 of Book 3 of The Lord of the Rings, The Road to Isengard. I just realized that I left the title card up for that entire thing, but that's okay because it gives you a chance to appreciate one of my favorite lines in the entire book. As King Theoden uh, remarks upon the meeting of dear friends, we will get to all of that in just a little bit. But we begin with the riding out from Helm's Deep as Legolas and Gimli chat a little bit. So it was that in the light of a fair morning, King Theoden and Gandalf the White Rider met again upon the green grass beside the deeping stream. There was also Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and Legolas the Elf, and Erkenbrand of Westfold, and the lords of the Golden House. About them were gathered the Rohirrim, the riders of the Mark. Wonder overcame their joy and victory, and their eyes were turned toward the wood. Suddenly there was a great shout, and down from the dike came those who had been driven back into the deep. There came Gamling the Old, and Eomer, son of Eomund, and beside them walked Gimli the Dwarf. He had no helm, and about his head was a linen band stained with blood, but his voice was loud and strong. Forty-two, Master Legolas, he cried. Alas, my axe is notched. The forty-second had an iron collar on his neck. How is it with you? You've passed my score by one, answered Legolas, but I do not grudge you the game, so glad am I to see you on your legs. Welcome, Eomer, sister's son, said Theoden. Now that I see you are safe, I am glad indeed. Hail, Lord of the Mark, said Eomer. The dark night has passed and day has come again, but the day has brought strange tidings. He turned and gazed in wonder, first at the wood and then at Gandalf. Once more you come for in the hour of need, unlooked for, he said. Unlooked for, said Gandalf. I said I would return and meet you here. But you did not name the hour nor foretell the manner of your coming. Strange help you bring. You are mighty in wizardry, Gandalf the White. That may be, but if so, I have not shown it yet. I have but given good counsel in peril and made use of the speed of Shadowfax. Your own valor has done more, and the stout legs of the Westfold men marching through the night. So a couple of things are going on. We're going to see a couple of things happening in the course of this chapter. First of all, of course, we have to observe the naming of names. We get the full name of everyone who is involved here at the top. Oh, are we having some video problems here? I guess not. The video problems seem to have... Uh Seem to have resolved themselves. That's good. Yes, Joseph and Angela are both calling out 42, 42 kills. Did Douglas Adams know that? Was this a direct reference? Perhaps. Perhaps Gimli is the answer that we have been searching for all this time to the riddle of life, the universe, and everything. But let's talk about these names. So it was that in the light of a fair morning, in fact, before we even get to the names, so it was, so it was, this... 
highly oratorical continuation of, of a narrative thread that has been broken by the chapter break is something of which the professor was very, very fond because it immediately lends us the weight of myth, right? This feels biblical in its style. This feels as though we are continuing a story. And so it was. You know, this is, is where we also get low and behold and other kind of pseudo semi-biblical interjections that we get throughout this entire book, which aren't biblical in the sense that he is trying to echo the pages of the Bible themselves, but they are biblical in the sense that they are of the highest possible level of oratory, right? This is this is such high level prose that it is almost part of the oral tradition. It is it is almost, you know, rhetorical at this point. So it was that in the light of a fair morning, a fair morning there too, this non-specific, right? Not the fair morning. So it was that the sun arose again. No, mythic. So it was that in the light of a fair morning, King Theoden and Gandalf the White Rider met again upon the green grass beside the deeping stream. There was also Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and Legolas the Elf, and Urkenbrand of Westfold, and the Lords of the Golden House. Full names for everyone. Everyone here renewed, renewed in their nobility, renewed in their identity, renewed and ready to continue the struggle. Remember what Gandalf said back at uh, back at, uh, at Edoras? This is not going to be it. This is not the final fight. We're going to go out now or everything is lost. But if we win, then we can turn our, uh, turn our attention to the next task. We can continue fighting the fight. That is the prize of victory here at Helm's Deep. We get to fight some more. We get to live to fight another day, as it were. And in that recommitment to action and that recommitment to the 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 fulfillment of opportunity the fulfillment of potential here our heroes are reborn they are cast again in this mythic light the mythic light of this new dawn king theoden and gandalf the white rider formal titles right aragorn son of arathorn legolas the elf is particularly great right not just legolas oh and legolas was there you know legolas because you've been reading about him now for like an entire book no legolas the elf Erkenbrand of Westfold, the Lords of the Golden House. And then we get it too when we continue from, when we kind of pivot as the camera pans to the other side. Suddenly there was a great shout and down from the dike came those who had been driven back into the deep. There came Gambling the Old. You know, Gambling the Old, everyone's favorite character. And Aomer, son of Aomond, and beside them walked Gimli the Dwarf. Again, Gimli the Dwarf. Why Gimli the Dwarf, lowercase d, versus Legolas the Elf, uppercase e? The only reason that I can think of, and I've checked a couple of different editions to make sure that this is consistent throughout, and by all means, if you have a copy of The Lord of the Rings to hand, go and check that out right now. The only thing that I can think differentiates the two is that while Gimli is of the line of Durin, he is not actually, you know, the direct heir, whereas Legolas is. So it's possible that the difference between the capital E elf and the lowercase d dwarf is rank here is is title here i'm not sure yeah um so then we get into our our uh our exchange 42 master legolas he cried alas my axe is not the 42nd had an iron collar on his neck how is it with you alas it would have been more only 42 the, the 42nd has ruined my axe this is terrible you've passed my score by one answer legolas but i do not grudge you the game so glad am i to see you on your legs so we get this tiny little beat of the two of them and then they kind of move out of the focus of the shot and we move into theoden and aomer welcome aomer sister son now that i see you are safe i am glad indeed hail lord of the mark the dark night has passed and day has come again Aomer there not just talking about the night through which they have fought and the coming of the sun that Aragorn foretold with prophetic skill upon the ramparts of Helm's Deep itself. This isn't just the coming of the day literally. This is, as Aragorn was referencing, the coming of the day metaphorically. The dark night has passed. Hail Lord of the Mark, said Aomer. 
my king, command me. Once again, we're seeing the renewal in the man of Rohan following the, the return of the, the hope and the dynamism, the, the presence and identity of the king. Now the king has been restored, so have the man of Rohan similarly been restored. The dark night has passed and day has come again. But the day has brought strange tidings, and then he turns to Gandalf. So we're getting our third little micro-vignette here as we move through. Once more you come in the hour of need unlooked for. Unlooked for, said Gandalf? I said I would return and meet you here. I, I said those words. Why weren't you looking for me, Eomer, son of Eomund? What's up with that? Did I not say, yes, I will be back, and you didn't expect me to come back? Shoddy, shoddy, Eomer. And then... Eomer responds, but you did not name the hour nor foretell the manner of your coming. Strange help you bring your mighty in wizardry, Gandalf the White. Look at what you've done. You came back to our assistance and, and brought the forest with you and you've saved everything. And the dawn came and the uruk were routed and now have been consumed by this terrifying forest. By the way, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. This is really weird. Gandalf, you're an amazing wizard. And Gandalf says, that may be. Yeah, yeah, I'm a pretty good wizard. None of this, BT dubs, was wizardry. None of this was magic. All, all of this was achieved through good counsel and the speed of shadow effects. I haven't cast a single spell or, or caused any magic in the last 24 hours. This is all just wisdom and speed. That has saved us. I have, I have but given good counsel and parallel and made use of the speed of shadow effects. Your own valor has done more and the stout legs of the Westfold man marching through the night. Let's be completely clear here, Eomer. I did not win this fight for you. You won this fight. This is not a victory for Gandalf against Saruman. This is a victory for all the men of Rohan against the holds of the of the Urukai. This is a greater victory than than wizardry would accommodate. Um, let me see here as I kind of yes, the difference between Aragorn the man and Eo yes, Aragorn the man with a capital M says Ty and Eomer the man with a lowercase M yes. Yes, Heroes and Bards uh, credits this to a publisher error. I'm inclined to blame the, pub the publishers. You know, Tolkien went back to the Lord of the Rings so often. There are lines that we're going to discuss in tonight's reading, in, in this afternoon's reading, I should say, since it's only two o'clock here in Oklahoma City. Um, there are lines that we're going to discuss here that were added back in in the 2004 reprint of the Lord of the Rings because Christopher Tolkien had basically done another pass through the original manuscripts and was ready to revise based on those original manuscripts and his father's original intent. The Lord of the Rings has been revised a lot. And Tolkien paid very close attention to this kind of thing. So in any other book, I would completely agree with you. In any other book, I would be willing to chalk it up to a typographic error or a mistake on the, the, the case of the, uh, the, 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 a mistake on the part of the publishers. But yes, it, with specific regard to the Lord of the Rings, I'm kind of unwilling to do that. I'm kind of more willing to look for, for deeper meaning there. Yeah. Lily simply says, Tolkien showing his bias. Very nice. Yes. Good. <laughs> Good, good. Oh, uh, Broder is telling us that in the Swedish translation, elf and dwarf both have lowercase. That's fascinating. That's very good. That's very good. And Rayla Lynn speaking for all of us here. Thanks, wizard dad. You came back and you saved us, but you really, you're telling me that I saved us, and that's really cool. Thanks so much, wizard dad. Excellent. Excellent. Um, it's the, as Leslie Skiba says, it's the magic of networking and calling in favors. Is that not what we call wisdom? Is that not the path of true wisdom is knowing who to talk to and when? Good. Okay. Yes, uh, uh, Logan is saying that the uh, the capitalization changes happen a lot in his Finnish translation too, probably because most English speakers don't even know why they're capitalized. Most English speakers, most English readers absolutely would not. Tolkien, I'm sure, would. And of course, the rules of capitalization are very different. I once read a fascinating article about the translation. I'll, I'll see if I can dig this up. I 
honestly have no idea where I would even find this, but I will try to dig up a really fascinating article about the translation of the Lord of the Rings into the German. And it was a very, very sensitive and thoughtful and respectful translation of the, the novel. So it's not just translating the literal word on the page, but the deeper intent. It's paying as much regard to Tolkien's novel, like the authored novel, The Lord of the Rings, as Tolkien paid to the fictional, you know, red book. It, it's kind of inheriting that tradition and taking it one step further in a metatextual way. I, I love that. Yeah. Good. Okay. Yes, the capitalization in the German edition is obligatory, says Varieg of Kant. Yes, of course. The, the rules in German, much more specific, much more... There's a mechanical elegance to German, which I appreciate a great deal. Yes. Good. Okay. Let's get into uh, our next slide here. As I, as you can probably tell, because the camera angle on the shot here has changed, I tore apart the entire studio and rebuilt everything. So now everything is in a slightly different place than it used to be. And I'm just kind of catching up. So forgive me if today's a little less, uh, a little less scrap or a little more scrappy than it usually is. Okay. Let's talk about, speaking of wizardry and great wizardry, right? Let's talk about these trees. Then they all gazed at Gandalf with still greater wonder. Some glanced darkly at the wood and passed their hands over their brows as if they thought their eyes saw otherwise than his. Gandalf laughed long and merrily. The trees, he said. Nay, I see the wood as plainly as you do. But this is no deed of mine. It is a thing beyond the counsel of the wise. Better than my design and better even than my hope the event had proved. The event has proved, excuse me. Then if not yours, whose is this wizardry, said Theoden. Not Saruman's, that is plain. Is there some mightier sage of whom we have yet to learn? It is not wizardry, but a power far older, said Gandalf. A power that walked the earth ere elf sang or hammer rang. Ere iron was found or tree was hewn, when young was mountain under moon, ere ring was made or wrought was woe, it walked the forests long ago. And what may be the answer to your riddle, said Theoden? If you would learn that, you should come with me to Isengard, answered Gandalf. To Isengard, they cried. Yes, said Gandalf. I shall return to Isengard, and those who will may come with me. There we, me there we may see strange things. So we're kind of foreshadowing the reveal that we will get after we have passed through the forest, this this magical forest, this uh, this Burnham Wood come to Dunsinane. We're going to see uh, an actual vision of the ants on the other side of the forest, but we're already kind of moving back into this mythic order of events, right? We talked a lot about, um, about the, the coming of mundanity or the return to the mortal realm when our heroes arrive at Edoras. And suddenly we're, we've left behind, you know, the, the, the realm of fairy in terms of Lothlorien, the similar realm of fairy, similar in some ways, quite different in others, of, of Fangorn and our encounter with Saruman, our encounter with Gandalf. Now we come to Edoras and we are back in the mundane realm. There is very little of magic here in Edoras. And the magic that we see is is a kind of metaphorical representative magic, right? It's the casting out of a literal darkness and replacing it with a literal light that also carries with it metaphorical power, that also carries with it a, a psychological insight, if you prefer, or the power of, of command, you know, the voice of, of Gandalf and the power of command, all of which we'll have a better opportunity to talk about next week, in fact, when we finally face down Saruman. So we're moving back now into this more, into this more fairy mode, I guess. I would distinguish between mythic here and fairy here. The mythic transition has already happened because we retreated from the fords of Aizen. You know, we, we retreated back from the crossing of the river into Helm's Deep, which is specifically and explicitly 
a mythic edifice, right? This was created by the Numenoreans. This is the fortress uh, which has never fallen. This is the fortress against which no foe can, can hold. This is, this is impregnable. This is absolutely mythic in the highest order there, right? And then, of course, Aragorn standing forth on the parapet with his foresight. The sun will come, and who knows what the new day will bring? Who knows what the new day will bring, says Aragorn, with astonishing foresight right there, which I, know that I noticed that I have a question in the... Uh, in the little question interface here from Ty, which I'll get to in just a moment, actually. Um, so all of this is enormously mythic, but it is mythic in the order of the men of Numenor, right? We've got this, this, this bulwark against darkness that was built first by the men of Numenor, has been held by the Rohirrim, yes, but, but is a, a Numenorean construction. And then we've got Aragorn, the heir of Numenor, the heir of Elendil, the heir of Isildur, the, the, the bearer of the sword that was broken and reforged. He's back too. So this is, this is mythic in the order of men. But now we're pivoting away back to something older, something more subtle, more deceptive, and something that is less immediately transparent to, to our kind of sense of morality, right? We don't know what the trees want. We don't know what the trees mean. And Gandalf laughs at the idea that he caused this. The trees, nay, I see the wood as plainly as you do. For, well, I guess he's laughing specifically that some glanced darkly at the wood and passed their hands over their brows as if they thought, the tree, they thought their eyes saw otherwise than his. So they're looking at the forest and like, uh, is, is it really a forest? And he laughs, the trees, nay, I see the wood as plainly as you do. Yes, of course it's a forest. What are you, crazy? But this is no deed of mine. It's a thing beyond the counsel of the wise. This is important. This isn't just Gandalf saying, no, I didn't do that. That's, that's, can't take the credit for that one, you guys. Weird things in the world. He's saying, no, that's beyond the counsel of the wise. I don't know about that. I'm not sure that I could do that. I'm not sure that I could cause this to happen through wizardry or, or even explain it if, if I tried. Better than my design and better even than my hope the event has proved. So this was not my plan, but hey, hasn't it all worked out beautifully? like a chance of chance you call it, you catastrophic kind of thing, could have been different, but it couldn't have been better kind of thing. I don't know if those words are at all familiar to anyone. Then if not yours, whose is this wizardry, says Theoden? Not Saruman's. So, okay, you didn't do that, but it's clearly magic. So, Saruman? Not Saruman? Obviously not Saruman, no, because it destroyed his orc army. So not Saruman. So, okay, is there some mightier sage of whom we have yet to learn? It's not wizardry, says Gandalf. That, that is not a magic spell that has made trees appear. It is a power far older, a power that walked the earth ere elf sang or hammer rang. Tying out to the elves and the dwarves there, right? Where elf sang or hammer rang, those are the beautifully kind of poetic resonances that we associate both with the, the kingdom of the elves and the kingdom of the dwarves. Ere iron was found or tree was hewn, again, drawing that connection, dwarf, elf, when young was mountain under moon, ere ring was made or wrought was woe, it walked the forests long ago. Ere ring was made, or wrought was woe. Hmm. Okay, ere ring was made, sure. Clearly a reference to the one ring, so we're going back to the second age there. That's absolutely fine. I have no problem with that at all. Before the ring was wrought, uh, before the ring was made, excuse me, there were ants in the world. There were older forces, older powers in the world. Absolutely fine, absolutely legitimate. Or wrought was woe? Well, that takes us to a pretty cosmological level, doesn't it? That takes us to a pretty theological level. When was woe wrought? When was woe brought into the world? Well, there are a few different specific instances that we can point at, but we're, we're kind of addressing the oldest roots of antiquity here. Where wrought was woe seems to me to be somewhat poetic here. Yes, it was at the moment of the creation of Arda, but arguably woe was already wrought by the time we got to the creation of Arda. We'll talk about that when we talk about the Silmarillion in about a year. It walked the forests long ago. So... Gandalf recites this little poem, and I'm unsure where this poem comes from. 
I'm unsure what he is reciting. This is another moment where we have to wonder, well, okay, is he reciting a poem that he knows or is he engaged in an act of spontaneous poetry? Is he just making this up? Is this just, you know, Gandalf at an open mic night? Yeah, <laughs> Heroes of Bards is cough-coughing Melkor here in the chat. Yes, that's right. That's right. Shane says, is there a spell in any story since Tolkien that makes trees appear or do we unwittingly keep this convention? Um, interesting. Are there spells that make trees appear? Not that I can think of, though my knowledge of all fantasy literature written in the wake of Tolkien is, of course, naturally imperfect. I believe that there are, uh, I believe that there are, you know, druidic spells in Dungeons and Dragons that can do that kind of thing. But I'm not a hundred percent certain. I've never played a druid myself, so I'm not sure. But yes, yes. Oh, and Ty says there is in Japanese folklore. Excellent. Interesting. Interesting. Good. When we talk about the Silmarillion, says Joseph, everyone drink. Yeah, I know, I know. It's tempting to, to just get distracted by those conversations and to, to pull straight into them. Poetry slam Gandalf style, says Angela. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Good. Um, yes, Heroes and Bard says that he likes the idea that he made it up on the spot. Variag of Khan says it's a riddle told by the Maiar. I like that a lot. Spencer said, I forget, when did Yvanna give the trees life? Was it before any beings came to Middle-earth? Not before any beings came. Well, uh -huh. <laughs> okay. This is after the creation of the dwarves, right? But after the creation of the dwarves, the dwarves are put away. They are sequestered away beneath the mountains to await the waking of the children of Iluvatar. So the children of Iluvatar have not yet woken when Yavanna sends forth, or, or Manwe sends forth the spirits to, to enter into the trees in whatever kind of questionable way that happens to create the ants. So there is a very strong argument that the ants are the first sentient beings in Middle-earth. But at that point in the ancient history of Arda, even time itself is screwy. And the the way in which, you know, effect follows cause is 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 not as strict or as linear as it will be in later time. You know, we're, we're just not chronicling then as we are now. So yes, the ants are the eldest. Ants are the oldest thing. Treebeard is the oldest living thing in Middle-earth, as we're going to discuss in the, in the next couple of chapters. Treebeard is, is it. He's been around the longest. Even possibly taking into account Tom Bombadil, depends on whether you account, you know, where did Tom Bombadil come from? Where did, did Treebeard come from? What does it mean to be in Middle-earth? What does it mean to be of Middle-earth? We're not entirely sure, but yes, ants were, were the eldest. So yes, a ring was made or wrought was well, when we're talking literally there, we're talking about the, the 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 unleashing of woe upon the world. We're talking about the doing of evil in the frame of Middle Earth. So technically, yes, they're they're correct. That, that at least if we follow that interpretation, then the poem is correct. But yeah, the underpinnings of evil in Arda are a little deeper than that. But. We can't spend, unfortunately, forever on this, though we would like to. And what may be the answer to your riddle, said Theoden? If you would like to learn that, you can come with me to Isengard, answered Gandalf. So we're going to push on to Isengard in the rest of this chapter. And basically what we're going to get is a little walking montage. We're not actually going to get any great drama in the rest of this chapter. We're not going to get any great events in the rest of this, in the rest of this chapter. We're just going to go to Isengard. But as I said right at the beginning of today's session, what we are going to do is draw breath. What we are going to do is prepare ourselves for the final climactic confrontation here in Book 3 of The Two Towers. And for those of you who haven't read ahead, Book 4 of The Two Towers deals with Frodo and Sam. So this is it for The Two Towers, for Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and Gandalf, Merry and Pippin, you know, this is the first half of the Two Towers story, but it is in a sense the complete Two Towers story. We're going to return to these characters much, much later. Let's, uh, let's get right to it. Okay. As we push on to dealing with the dead. The king now returned to the Hornburg and slept, such a sleep of quiet as he had not known for many years, and the remainder of his chosen company rested also. 
But the others, all that were not hurt or wounded, began a great labour, for many had fallen in the battle and lay dead upon the field or in the deep. No orcs remained alive, their bodies were uncounted, but a great many of the hillmen had given themselves up, and they were afraid and cried for mercy. The men of the mark took their weapons from them and set them to work. "'Help now to repair the evil in which you have joined,' said Erkenbrand, "'and afterwards you shall take an oath never again to pass the fords of Eisen in arms, nor to match with the enemies of man, and then you shall go free back to your land, for you have been deluded by Saruman. Many of you have got death as the reward of your trust in him, and had you conquered, little better would your wages have been.' The men of Dunland were amazed, for Saruman had told them that the men of Rohan were cruel and burned their captives alive. In the midst of the field before the Hornburg, two mounds were raised, and beneath them were laid all the riders of the mark who fell in the defence, those of the East Dales upon one side and those of the Westfold upon the other, but the men of Dunland were set apart in a mound below the dyke. In a grave alone under the shadow of the Hornburg lay Hama, captain of the king's guard. He fell before the gate. The orcs were piled in great heaps, away from the mounds of men, not far from the eaves of the forest, and the people were troubled in their minds, for the heaps of carrion were too great for burial or for burning. They had little wood for firing, and none would have dared to take an axe to the strange trees, even if Gandalf had not warned them to hurt neither bark nor bough at their great peril. "'Let the orcs lie,' said Gandalf. "'The morning may bring new counsel.'" Pity from Erkenbrand. Joseph is calling this out. Good guy Erkenbrand, says Ty. Erkenbrand speaks, says Jackie. I know. I think I said last time that Erkenbrand doesn't get a line because I had completely forgotten that he gets this one line. This, And it's not even like a line of dialogue in the sense that he is interacting with another character, right? He is instead being given the embodiment of the Rohiric position here, right? He gets to declaim in Rohiric fashion about the, the, the prisoners who have been captured, the men of the Dunland here. This is, is enormously important, of course. The dealing with the dead says a lot about who you are, but that, that exchange is arguably the most important. Um, no orc remained alive, for their, uh, their bodies were uncounted, but a great many of the hillmen had given themselves up. They were afraid and cried for mercy. So, we're going to learn in the paragraph following Erkenbrand's line here, the men of Dunland were amazed for Saruman had told them that the men of Rohan were cruel and burned their captives alive. So they're coming into this conflict believing that they are going to be burned alive, believing that the, the Rohirrim have no pity about them, no mercy about them. But Erkenbrand takes their weapons and speaks to them. He sets them to work. Help now to repair the evil in which you have joined, and afterwards you shall take an oath never again to pass the fords of Eisen in arms, nor to, ma nor to march with the enemies of men. And then you shall go free back to your land, for you have been deluded by Saruman. You are, in a sense, innocent victims of this. And this gives us one of the strongest and clearest perspectives on goodness and and evilness in the works of Tolkien, right? What is good? What is virtue? What is evil? What is malice? What is malevolence here? Well, these men are innocent in a sense, innocent in that they have been deluded, innocent in that they have no spark of original malice within their hearts. They are not themselves agents of evil. They are the tools of evil. They do not work evil themselves. They work evil under the direction of others, thanks to Saruman's manipulation here, thanks to Saruman's lies and deceit. So they work evil, but they are not to be blamed for that evil. Okay, that seems consistent, but you don't just get to go home. You have to work now. You have to undo, repair the evil in which you have joined. Not literally repairing the Hornburg, not literally repairing Helm's Deep here. That's not necessarily what we're talking about. We're talking about the marshalling of the bodies. You have to undo the evil that you have committed, and then, and only then, you get to go. But I will take your oath that you will not cross the Fords of Eisen with weapons. I will 
You know, it's funny that we just talked about um, just talked about Ged versus the dragon of Pandor back in our discussion of a Wizard of Earthsea on Tuesday, and here we have another injunction. You know, by invoking your name, says Erkenbrand, I will see to it that you will never cross the fords of Eisen again and trouble the lands of the Rohirrim. This is a very similar kind of conversation. Um, uh, in the film, Alice says, in the film, Aragorn does the same for the Helm's Deep Fighters. I don't remember if it's in the book. Show no mercy, for you shall receive none. Um, yeah, I mean, well, mm, okay. Let's put possibly the world's largest pin because it is going to be a year before we get a chance to talk about that. But let's put a very large pin in specifically the treatment of mercy and the mechanics of warfare between the book and the movies. Because we're not done yet with, <laughs> obviously, we're not done yet with warfare in the books. We're going to have plenty of opportunity to talk about how we engage with one another on the field of battle and then we'll be able to contrast that with the movies but yes there are some stark differences that are made for the movies or some changes that are made for the movies but i think that in general again you know you may not approve of the changes but you can at least concede that the changes are intentional and are in a way comprehensive that they are leading towards something there um okay Good, let me see as I, as I, yes, as Jackie says, another great example of how dangerous the words of Saruman are. So this is one of our first steps, right? This is one of our, our first steps in constructing the, the path that will take us. It's the road to Isengard, right? The, the name of this chapter doesn't just mean the, the journey that we take to Isengard for, you know, the, the characters in the story. It is also the journey that we ourselves take to Isengard. It is, we are setting forth the path here that will lead us to that final conflict with Saruman. And this is a very important step along that path because we are acknowledging now that Saruman is deceitful, that he has manipulated these men into coming to war, that he has lied to them about the, the merciless cruelty of the Rohirrim in order to keep them engaged during the battle, in order to ensure that they will not surrender. But ultimately, of course, they did surrender. Why did they surrender when they were told definitely don't surrender? Well, again, we're going to have more opportunity to talk about this next week, but Evil is self-destructive. Evil, you know, I'm reminded of, of Aomer's line to Aragorn in chapter two of, of this book. Of book three, I should say. <laughs> chapter two, I know, the word book is just meaningless when you're talking about the Lord of the Rings. But in, in chapter two of this book, I think it's when Aomer talks to Aragorn and he's saying that uh, uh, we, of the, we of the Rohirrim are not, uh, we of the Mark are not easily deceived for we do not lie, right? He draws that direct comparison. We tell the truth, so we are not deceived. And that's really interesting because you might expect the opposite to be true, right? You might expect those who are blunt and honest with everyone to be actually pretty easy to manipulate because they're not looking for treachery. They're not looking for deception. They're not looking to be misled. They don't necessarily, you know, have that, that filter in place that allows them to evaluate the truth, uh, the, the, the truth value of any statement that comes to them. No. Among the Rohirrim, at least, those who speak truly are almost free from the, the, the shadow of deceit itself, because deceit warps the mind. To lie, to misrepresent yourself, to try to manipulate others, is to be twisted in, in and of yourself, right? You are corrupting yourself. So those who lie are, in fact, more easily manipulated by others because they are weaker. They are already twisted. It is a simple thing to take a liar and lie to them within the pages of The Lord of the Rings. Honesty kind of, of is, is stood apart. So this is one of the reasons in, or one of the, the explanations of the self-destructive impulse of evil, right? 
We lie. Evil lies. It deceives. It manipulates. But in so doing, it breaks that which it seeks to empower. It, it, it weakens that which it seeks to, to wield in strength. That is the greatest flaw of evil. And here we're seeing this represented. And of course, yes, of course, pity and mercy and the goodness of the Rohirrim. Many of you have got death as, uh, many of you have got death as the reward of your trust in him. But had you conquered little better, would your wages have been? This was never going to work out for you guys. So you're going to help atone. You're going to help remedy the, the ills that you have done. And then you're going to depart. Then you're going to go home and never trouble our door again. Okay, let's, um, <clears throat> good. Let's move on to the next. Yes, there you go. Alice says, you can't cheat an honest man is the basic assumption of hustle. Yes, a, a famous kind of, uh, a famous line which echoes through a lot of, of crime stories and heist stories in particular, right? This idea that, that everyone has an angle and the only person who is, is preserved from that is the honest man, the man who speaks the truth. Yes, absolutely. Good. Let's move on to our next slide as we ride now through the forest. They rode in silence for a while, but Legolas was ever glancing from side to side and would often have halted to listen to the sounds of the wood if Gimli had allowed it. These are the strangest trees that ever I saw, he said, and I have seen many an oak grow from acorn to ruinous age. I wish that there were leisure now to walk among them. They have voices, and in time I might come to understand their thought. No, no, said Gimli, let us leave them. I guess their thought already, hatred of all that go on two legs, and their speeches of crushing and strangling. Not of all that go on two legs, said Legolas. There I think you are wrong. It is orcs that they hate, for they do not belong here. I know little of elves and men. Far away are the valleys where they sprang. From the deep dales of Fangorn, Gimli, is whence they come, I guess. Then that is the most perilous wood in Middle-earth, said Gimli. I should be grateful for the part they have played, but I do not love them. You may think them wonderful, but I have seen a greater wonder in this land, more beautiful than any grove or glade that ever grew. My heart is still full of it. Strange are the ways of men, Legolas. Here they have one of the marvels of the northern world, and what do they say of it? Caves, they say, caves, holes they fly to in time of war to store fodder in. My good Legolas, do you know that the caverns of Helm's Deep are vast and beautiful? There would be an endless pilgrimage of dwarves merely to gaze at them if such things were known to be. Aye, indeed, they would pay pure gold for a brief glance. And I would give gold to be excused, said Legolas, and double to be let out if I strayed in. So this feels, initially, like we're just getting some more of that Legolas Gimli stuff, right? We talked about this last time, we talked about this previously in, in this book. We get some of that kind of combative, odd couple, you know, mismatched, align, uh, misaligned uh, priorities and principles here from Legolas and Gimli. And it's warm and it's charming and it's beautiful, but there is more going on here. Firstly, yes, Legolas is sensitive to the forest. Yes, he is understanding that this forest is different, that he himself has never encountered. And it's not because the forest is here. It's not because this forest has been mobilized. He makes it very clear. For they do not belong here, and know little of elves and men. Far away are the valleys where they sprang from the deep dales of Fangorn Gimli. Is, that is whence they come, I guess. So this, is, this forest is not strange because it is here. This forest is strange because of where it comes from, that, that it was... These trees have come from the hidden dales of Fangorn Forest and know little of elves or men, but they do know of orcs and they hate orcs. So Gimli does as Gimli will and says, well, no thank you to forests. No thank you. It's, it's very weird and creepy. I should be grateful for the part they have played, but I do not love them. You may think them wonderful. And here he pivots. But I have seen a greater wonder in this land, more beautiful than any grove or glade that ever grew. My heart is still full of it. You've seen something wonderful, Gimli? What have you seen? And he says, caves. 
I have seen the, the, um, the caverns of Helm's Deep are vast and beautiful. There would be an endless pilgrimage of dwarves merely to gaze at them if such things were known to be. I indeed, they would pay pure gold for a brief glance. Dwarves would willingly part with gold to see the caverns behind Helm's Deep. That is how great they are. And then, of course, Gimli goes into an explanation. He talks at length about these caverns. Why are we spending our time here worrying about the brilliance of the caverns of Helm's Deep? Would the time to have this discussion not have been before we got to Helm's Deep? Or could we not have had a brief sequence with Gimli and, and Eomer in the caverns behind Helm's Deep and, and look at them directly, get a first-person account of what's going on? Well, I mean, we could have done that latter thing, but we chose not to. We chose to keep our focus where it needed to be, not on the minute stories, not on the incidental stories, not on the mundane stories of men, but on the mythic stories of Aragorn at the parapet, you know, Aragorn foreseeing the coming of the dawn. In our mythic register, the pivot away to the smaller stories of the refugees in the caverns would not have been as impressive. It would have undercut the primary point, the, the mythic resonance of Helm's Deep there. But we revisit it now to enforce a very important perspective, to, to clarify and distill a very important perspective. And it's a perspective that Legolas himself will be somewhat amenable to. He will kind of come around on this discussion a little bit. Okay, so we open with the forest. I have seen many an oak grow from, from acorn to ruinous age. I wish there were no leisure to walk among them. They have voices, and in time I might come to understand their thought. This is a wonder. This is something very, very special for Legolas. And Gimli says, eh, forest, weird, don't love it. But caverns. And the reason that Gimli is talking about the caverns here, and the reason that Legolas comes around on the caverns here, is that when we get to Isengard, we are going to get a perspective on an industrial landscape. We are going to get a powerful description of something that is... <laughs> something that is unnatural, right? Something that is inorganic. Something that is cruel and hard-edged and... and, and of artifice, right? Something that has been created and forged something that is cold and, and dead, though not yet quiet, right? We're going to look at that later in today's discussion. The reason that Gimli talks about the caverns behind Helm's Deep is to make it clear from Tolkien's perspective that he's not talking about the distinction between living things and unliving things. We're getting the discussion of the caverns now, I believe, because he wants to make it clear that actually what is important is not living versus unliving, right? It's not live versus dead. That is not the thematic distinction that we're, we're stressing here. That is not what is important about either the forest or the, the ruin of Isengard, the, the, the desolation of Isengard. It's not about alive versus dead. It's about natural versus unnatural. It's about the domination of the landscape. When Gimli rhapsodizes about the caverns behind Helm's Deep, he's not talking about the, the great artifice of the men of Numenor. Remember, we discussed this last time, when he's looking at the Hornburg and he's saying, wow, this is the fortress that has endured for like 2,000 years and has never fallen against any enemy. Yeah, give me 100 dwarves in a year. I could really make it something. I could really do something here. This could be great. He's unimpressed by the, the work of the hands of the men of Numenor. That's not what he's talking about when he's talking about the caverns. He's talking about their natural beauty. He's talking about the natural world that is relatively or almost completely unsullied by not just the work of man, but unsullied by artifice. So we're drawing this connection now, and we're having Legolas warm to the idea of the caves now in order to focus our attention on the right thematic conflict, that it is not about alive and dead. It is not about, you know, green and not green. It is, or, or worse still, forest and not forest. It is about natural and unnatural. It is about wild and true and dominated, crushed, put to service and purpose. 
That's the thematic distinction that Tolkien is making, and he is so skillfully here on the road to Isengard preparing us for this conflict. This is what we're going to move into. Um, Isengard is the Glasgow of Middle-earth. Wow, uh, I'm going to credit that to Variag of Khand here in the Crowdcast chat and back away from it respectfully. Um, there is a powerful distinction for those of you who have spent any time in Scotland or for those of you who may spend some time in Scotland. There are basically four primary cities in Scotland betwixt which there is a certain antipathy. In the southwest is Glasgow and in the northeast is Aberdeen. And Glasgow and Aberdeen are both stern, austere, working class cities that have you know industrial roots and have kind of transformed a little bit out of that but still bear the weight of those things. Then that's the southwest Glasgow and the northeast Aberdeen. Then in the northwest you have Inverness and in the southeast you have Edinburgh and those two cities have always been, you know, seats of government and enlightenment and education and they themselves have never been industrial cities in quite the way that Glasgow and Aberdeen have been. So there is a constant tension and conflict between, you know, this this kind of, of northwest to southeast axis, the, the A9 axis between Inverness and, and Edinburgh and this, you know, southwest to northeast axis between Glasgow and Aberdeen. It is no coincidence that Edinburgh is probably my favorite city in the world, and I used to spend a lot of time in Inverness. But, you know, I also went to school in Aberdeen, so th there are a few things that I can talk about, yes. Ty says, Inverness has my heart. Inverness is uh, a city of wonder. And Skipa is opposing Variag's uh, contention here. Skipa, I know, loves Glasgow. And, and in absolute fairness, I have not spent a lot of time in Glasgow since its renaissance in the mid-90s, so uh, it's not entirely fair, yes. But, yeah, ah. Uh, Inverness is just, Inverness is a great city. If you ever get a chance, don't, don't miss out on Inverness when you're traveling through Scotland. It really is a wonderful city, yes. Okay, we must get back, uh, turn our attention away from Scotland, back to the Vale of Rohan here, back to Isengard. So all of this is, is to to prime our understanding of the thematic conflict which is coming, and we're not done yet. We're, there are still a step or two more that we have to, uh, that we have to acknowledge. After emerging from the forest, after our, our heroes have traveled through the entire forest and emerge on the grassland, which is actually right at the end of the conversation between Legolas and Gimli, they look out and they see the ants, and then we get this conversation. You need no weapons, said Gandalf. These are but herdsmen. They are not enemies. Indeed, they are not concerned with us at all. So it seemed to be, for as he spoke, the tall creatures without a glance at the riders strode into the wood and vanished. Herdsmen, said Theoden, where are their flocks? What are they, Gandalf? For it is plain to you, at any rate, they are not strange. They are the shepherds of the trees, answered Gandalf. Is it so long since you listened to tales by the fireside? There are children in your land who, out of the twisted threads of story, could pick the answer to your question. You have seen Ents, O king, Ents out of Fangorn Forest, which in your tongue you call the Entwood. Did you think that name was given only an idle fancy? Nay, Theoden, it is otherwise. To them you are but the passing tale. All the years from Aeol the young to Theoden the old are of little count to them, and all the deeds of your house but a small matter. The king was silent. Ents, he said at length, out of the shadows of legend I begin... Excuse me, out of the shadows of legend I begin a little to understand the marvel of those trees, I think. I have lived to see strange days. Long we have tended our beasts and our fields, built our houses, wrought our tools, or ridden away to help in the wars of Minas Tirith, and that we have called the life of man, the way of the world. We cared little for what lay beyond the borders of our land. Songs we have that tell of these things, but we are forgetting them, teaching them only to children as a careless custom, and now the songs have come down among us out of strange places and walk visible under the sun. You should be glad, Theoden King, said Gandalf, for not only the little life of men is now endangered, but the life also of those things which you have deemed the matter of legend. You are not without allies, even if you know them not. 
Yet also I should be sad, said Theoden, for however the fortune of war shall go, may it not so end that much that was fair and wonderful shall pass forever out of Middle-earth. It may, said Gandalf. The evil of Sauron cannot be wholly cured, nor made as if it had not been. But to such days we are doomed. Let us now go on with the journey we have begun. So, Theoden, who was, of course, king of the Golden Hall, but king of the mundane world, king of the mundane world of the Rohirrim when we came to him in Edoras, has now transitioned fully into fairy. He has, in some sense, literally passed through the fairy wood, right? He has literally passed through a realm of magic, and now he is seeing with his own eyes the ants. He is seeing the herdsmen of the forest. He is seeing these things which linger in Rohiric culture only in songs told to children. And, of course, we've been talking about this ever since we got to Rohan. Remember uh, Aragorn's song about Errol the Young, Where Now is the Rider? That was about the passing of memory. It was about the celebration, almost, of, of the Rohiric approach to history and, and tradition, that these things pass. It is not about the past. It is not important that we remember the past. It is important that we live now in the present. As he says, long have we tended our beasts and our fields, built our houses, wrought our tools, or ridden away to help in the wars of Minas Tirith, and that we called the life of man, the way of the world. That was what we thought was important. We have done these things, and not just done them, but celebrated the doing of them. We have been defined by the doing of them. We are present as few other cultures on the face of Middle Earth are. We are in the here and the now. We occupy our, our temporal space as well as our physical space, and we do it with, with gusto. But it turns out that the world is larger than we thought, that there are borders around our own experience which are unmarked, like Frodo's maps of the Shire, all the way back at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring. What exists beyond the bounds of the Shire? Just white, just the empty page, just nothingness. We know nothing of that. And now he is being reintroduced to a larger world here, reintroduced in a, in a cultural sense, not in a specifically personal sense. And even Gandalf is being a little wry here. You know, there are children in your land who out of the twisted threads of story could pick the answer to your question. You have seen ants, O king. O king, they're just a little sarcastic, maybe. You have seen ants, O king. You know, this is, children know this story. How do you not know this story? How are you the king and you don't know what an ant is? What has happened in, in Rohan? You have seen ants, O king. Ants of the Fangorn Forest, which in your tongue you call the ant wood. The wood of the ants. Did you think it was just idle fancy? Did you think that name was given only in idle fancy? Nay, Theoden, it is otherwise. Notice how he transitions back there from O king to Theoden, you know? Anglo-Saxon culture, it wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't have necessary, it wouldn't have been necessary, excuse me, to address him always as king or my lord, even for Gandalf, who is, you know, now a lord of the Rohirrim. Remember, he was appointed that in our last reading. Nay, Theoden, he comes back to the man here. It is otherwise. To them, you are but the passing tale. All the years from Errol the young to Theoden the older of little count to them, and all the deeds of your house are but a small matter. It's been 500 years. To who... <laughs> To whom are the deeds of the Rohirrim also a small matter? Well, to the Rohirrim. They don't count the years that have passed, the years that have flown out, that have washed out and come back from the sea. Remember Aragorn's song? The years that passed like the rain on the hillside? The Rohirrim don't remember. They don't 
retain their culture. They lost all of that when they were fractured from the North, a fracturing that they themselves see to be heroic, a fracturing which was actually, specifically, consciously heroic, right? They did a great thing coming down from the North to aid Gondor in their hour of need, five centuries past, when Errol the Young led this, this host of riders south, and then they forged the kingdom of Rohan. But they've lost their history. They've lost their connection with the world. And of course, there was a certain irony too. Uh, to them, you are but the passing tale. All the years from Errol the Young to Theoden the Old are of little count to them. Also, that's 500 years and Gandalf has been around for four times that long. Gandalf has been in Middle-earth for four times that long and of course has been a presence in the world since the world was literally created. So you have to wonder what Gandalf's perspective is on this too. And Theoden sees this. We cared little for what lay beyond the borders of our land. Songs we have that tell of these things, but we are forgetting them, teaching them only to children as a careless custom. And you can't help but feel the, the pen of the professor right there, right? This is J.R.R. Tolkien's whole point. Why are fairy stories for children? Because we are careless. Because we are forgetting the stories that are important. We are passing them down only to children. That is why fairies have dwindled from the world, because they are not remembered. Again, we're seeing the transition here to modernity, right? Which is capped right at the end of this entire discussion. And yet I should be sad, for however the fortune of war shall go, may it not so end that much that was fair and wonderful shall pass forever out of Middle-earth. Hey, King Theoden, spoilers, but yes. Yes, much that was fair and wonderful shall pass forever out of Middle-earth. In fact, not even spoilers, we know this is going to happen because this is the same conversation we have with Galadriel, right? We have this conversation with Galadriel back in Lothlorien that... Once the One Ring is destroyed, once the power is brought, either Sauron wins and Lothlorien is put to fire, like terrible things happen to Lothlorien, or Sauron is defeated through the destruction of the One Ring and they fade. Magic departs from the world. So Theoden is coming into this story at exactly the worst point that you can come into the story. Wait, all of these legends are true? This is insane. Oh, also they're over now? Cool. Well, okay. Not great, actually, but okay. We should at least probably try and remember them in song, right? Um, let me see. As we come back here, <laughs> Salty Wizard Dad says Ty Easton. I love all of the uh, all of the um, <laughs> the little modifiers that we'll give to Wizard Dad here. Yes, we are forgetting them, says Jackie, crying. I know, I know. It's there are a few parts in this book where I will still uh, will still weep. Those are still to come, yes. Um, Heather says, I am touched by the idea of the forgotten parts of the world. Theoden knew the forest was called the Entwood, but the knowledge of the true existence events was nearly forgotten and had been relegated to children's stories. Exactly, right? He still knew the meaning of the word. And this, of course, is another part of, of Tolkien's kind of professorial intrusion into his own text. Hey, you know the name of the thing? The name of the thing comes from the essence of the thing. Even to us, even in our modern language, the name of the thing most often relates to the essence of the thing. Knowing a thing's name should mean, because we are experienced and educated people who care about language, knowing the name of the thing should mean that we have some insight, not an entish insight into the whole unfolding story of the thing, but some superficial, you know, brief and, and, and flickering insight into the nature of the thing. But that has been forgotten in Rohirrim too, yeah. Uh, among the Rohirrim too, yeah. Um, good, okay, I think I'm all caught up here. Yes, as Jackie said, this is beautiful. As Jackie says, we will win, but the world will still be diminished and we will let these wonderful things pass us by. Yeah, we're already certain of this, right? And it's no coincidence either that the evocation of that point calls to mind Galadriel and the conversations that we had back in Lothlorien because we're going to be thinking a little bit about Galadriel as we approach the end of this chapter. We're going to be thinking a little bit about, about Lothlorien versus Isengard, basically, and how they relate. Um, 
Joseph says, I feel like the perspective of the Rohirrim comes, just eluding entire syllables there, I apologize. I feel like the perspective of the Rohirrim comes closest to that of the reader. We have the same wonder and sadness that they feel. Absolutely right, Joseph. Absolutely right. Because this is all related to what I was talking about when we arrived at Edoras, right? That transition back to the mundane world, that transition out of fairy as we we leave behind the fringes of Fangorn Forest. And even as we bring Gandalf with him, uh, with, with us, I should say, we move back to mundanity. And we leave behind the stories of wonder and embrace the stories of man, right? This is, and that was, uh, that we called the life of man, the way of the world. This is King Theoden and Professor Tolkien making a broader point here that we thought that the work of our hands and the making of our tools and the tending of our flocks and the, the, the minutia of everyday life, we thought that was life. We thought that was the way of the world. We thought the way of the world, we thought that was the world. We thought that was the entirety of our interaction with creation, and it is not. The world is wider and more magical, and certainly Professor Tolkien would have said that This was not a metaphor for Professor Tolkien. I'm certain of this. He would have said this was true of the world, the actual world that we are all sharing today. And I'm inclined to agree. I'm inclined to agree that there is still wonder and magic out there. Though perhaps only an ent or two lingers still. All right. Let's uh, keep pushing on here. That's our, our reveal of the ants. And again, of course, just to kind of qualify this too, the point that Theoden makes about wonder and magic departing the world it doesn't just tie us back to galadriel it connects us forward to saruman so bear that in mind too saruman is going to make exactly this argument in like a minute or not actually in a minute it's going to be in next week's reading but we'll get there in due course so from here we look out on isengard there was an ancient highway that ran down from isengard to the crossings for some way it took its course beside the river bending with it east and then north but at the last it turned away and went straight toward the gates of isengard and these were under the mountainside in the west of the valley, sixteen miles or more from its mouth. This road they followed, but they did not ride upon it, for the ground beside it was firm and level, covered for many miles about with a short springing turf. They rode now more swiftly, and by midnight the fords were nearly five leagues behind. Then they halted, ending their night's journey, for the king was weary. They were come to the feet of the misty mountains, and the long arms of Nankurinir stretched down to meet them. Dark lay the veil before them, for the moon had passed into the west, and its light was hidden by the hills." But out of the deep shadow of the dale rose a vast spire of smoke and vapor. As it mounted, it caught the rays of the sinking moon and spread in shimmering billows black and silver over the starry sky. "'What do you think of that, Gandalf?' asked Aragorn. "'One would say that all the wizard's veil was burning.' "'There is ever a fume above the valley in these days,' said Aomer. "'But I have never seen aught like this before. "'There are steams rather than smokes. "'Saruman is brewing some devilry to greet us. "'Maybe he is boiling all the waters of Isen, and that is why the river runs dry.' "'Maybe he is,' said Gandalf. "'Tomorrow we shall learn what he is doing. "'Now let us rest for a while, if we can.' "'They camped beside the bed of the Eisen River, "'which was silent and empty. "'Some of them slept a little, "'but late in the night the watchman cried out and all awoke. "'The moon was gone. "'Stars were shining above, "'but over the ground there kept darkness blacker than the night. "'On both sides of the river it rolled toward them, going northward. "'Stay where you are,' said Gandalf. "'Draw no weapons. "'Wait, it will pass you by.' A mist gathered about them. Above them a few stars still glimmered faintly, but on either side there arose walls of impenetrable gloom. They were in a narrow lane between moving towers of shadow. Voices they heard, whisperings and groanings and an endless rustling sigh. The earth shook under them. Long it seemed to them that they sat and were afraid. But at last the darkness and the rumor passed and vanished between the mountain's arms. Heroes and Bards says in the uh, chat here, there is an interesting contrast between the view here that the world is wide and unknown and the way that the small and well-known Shire is viewed. Um, 
Yes. Yes. You're right. Um, <laughs> it is tempting when we talk about the Shire to talk about it as though it is utopian, right? To talk about the Shire as though it is itself idyllic. But remember that even at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo didn't feel that way. Frodo thought that actually the Shire could really use, well, as he says, you know, an attack by a dragon or, or something of that order. He doesn't he doesn't mean that, and he certainly recants it later. But the, the world is insular. And remember, too, that the Shire that we met in The Hobbit, to the extent that we were familiarized with the Shire in The Hobbit, it has been changed by Bilbo's return, right? The answer to the conundrum of Took and Baggins, the answer to the conundrum of, of mortal and myth, the answer to the conundrum of, of natural and supernatural is not one or the other. It is integration. It is the best parts of both. And it is preserving that, that mediation, right? To, to preserve that that balance between the two. The world should be a thing of wonder and a thing of beauty, and there should be magic in the world, but also bacon and also tea and also comfort and also pipe smoke and also, you know, a comfortable chair by the hearth. All of these things should also exist. And there's no reason, as Professor Tolkien lays out for us here, why one or the other should be preferable, except that we are declining away from magic. Okay. Um, let me see. The Shire could use a Palantir, says Joseph. Hey, we're going to talk about Palantir pretty soon, actually. We're going to get a chance to do that. Yes. Um, yeah, Seastar says, I love the descriptions of Nan Kurinir, Isengard, and Orthanc. Grim though they are, Tolkien's landscape descriptions are always wonderful. It's funny, I was just talking about this on Tuesdays. We were talking about Ursula K. Le Guin's A Wizard of Earthsea, and the absence of this specific kind of writing from A Wizard of Earthsea means that the world feels much more ephemeral, much more ethereal. It feels less defined than Tolkien's world, right? You feel that you would know Tolkien's Middle-earth even if you'd never seen a map of the place, right? And there's actually a map of Earthsea, but because we don't get these moments of, because Ursula K. Le Guin doesn't see the landscape the way that the professor saw the landscape, the way that she doesn't write with a painter's eye the way that the, the professor does, uh, the professor did, um, those two impulses are very different. So the, the, the end results are very different. I have a very firm sense of how all of this works. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me see here. Um, good. Okay. I think we're all caught up here in the Crowdcast chat. That's excellent. We're talking about whether or not we're caught up with the reading. Yes. Yes. Ty says, I keep reading past the homework. I'm already with Frodo and Sam. Well, that's that's just fine. That's just fine. The podcast will catch up to you. That, that's okay. That, that, it can work out that way. It's going to be just fine. Okay. We're going to circle back around to talk about this magic next week, uh, this, this darkness that comes next week. But this is another part of this you know, uh, kind of building toward the, the, the conflict at Isengard. We're going to talk about that when we get there. So we'll, we'll certainly uh, do that. But first today, as I draw fairly close to my time, it's going to be a slightly shorter session today. I don't think I mentioned that right at the beginning of today's show, but yes, I have a hard out today. So we're going to try and move through our last couple of slides and, uh, and make this happen. So this is our long description of Isengard itself. And I want you to think about the specific aspects of this description, which are supposed to evoke well, fear, austerity, hopelessness, you know, what is it about Isengard specifically? Given that we've just established that the the inorganic world can still be wondrous and magical, what is it about Isengard specifically that makes us feel the way that this passage makes us feel? This was its fashion while Saruman was at its height, was at his height, excuse me, accounted by many the chief, uh, accounted by many the chief of wizards. A great ring wall of stone, like towering cliffs, stood out from the shelter of the mountainside, from which it ran and then returned again. 
One entrance only there was made in it. A great arch delved in the southern wall. Here, through the black rock, a long tunnel had been hewn, closed at either end with mighty doors of iron. They were so wrought and poised upon their huge hinges, posts of steel driven into the living stone, that when they unbarred they could be moved with the light thrust of the arms, noiselessly. One who passed in and came at length out of the echoing tunnel beheld a plain, a great circle, somewhat hollowed like a vast shallow bowl, a mile it measured from rim to rim. Once it had been green and filled with avenues and groves of fruitful trees, watered by streams that flowed from the mountains to a lake. But no green thing grew there in the latter days of Saruman. The roads were paved with stone flags, dark and hard. Beside their borders, instead of trees, there marched long lines of pillars, some of marble, some of copper and of iron, joined by heavy chains. Many houses there were, chambers, halls, and passages, cut and tunneled back into the walls upon their inner side, so that all the open circle was overlooked by countless windows and dark doors. Thousands could dwell there. Workers, servants, slaves, and warriors with great store of arms. Wolves were fed and stabled in deep dens beneath. The plain, too, was bored and delved. Shafts were driven deep into the ground. Their upper ends were covered by low mounds and domes of stone, so that in the moonlight the ring of Isengard looked like a graveyard of unquiet dead. For the ground trembled. The shafts ran down by many slopes and spiral stairs to caverns far under. There Saruman had treasuries, storehouses, armories, smithies, and great furnaces. Iron wheels revolved there endlessly, and hammers thudded. At night plumes of vapor steamed from the vents, lit from beneath with red light, or blue, or venomous green. To the center all the roads ran between their chains. There stood a tower of marvelous shape. It was fashioned by the builders of old who smoothed the ring of Isengard, and yet it seemed a thing not made by the craft of man, but riven from the bones of the earth in the ancient torment of the hills. A peak and isle of rock it was, black and gleaming hard. Four mighty piers of many-sided stone were welded into one, but near the summit they opened into gaping horns, their pinnacles sharp as the points of spears, keen-edged as knives. Between them was a narrow space, and there upon a floor of polished stone, written with strange signs, a man might stand five hundred feet above the plain. This was Orthanc, the citadel of Saruman, the name of which had, by design or chance, a twofold meaning, for in the elvish speech Orthanc signifies Mount Fang, but in the language of the mark of old, the cunning mind. A strong place and wonderful was Isengard, and long it had been beautiful, and there great lords had dwelt and wardens of Gondor upon the west, the wardens of Gondor upon the west, excuse me, and wise men had watched the stars, but Saruman had slowly shaped it to his shifting purposes and made it better, as he thought, being deceived. For all those arts and subtle devices for which he forsook his former wisdom and which fondly he imagined were his own came but from Mordor, so that what he made was not only a little copy, a child's model or a slave's flattery of that vast fortress, armory, prison, furnace of great power, Barad-dur, the, the dark tower, which suffered no rival and laughed at flattery, biding its time, secure in its pride and its immeasurable strength. Wow. Okay. So that's quite the description. Let's look at what we're actually dealing with here. There are a couple of interesting details that we should seek to separate from one another. There are two threads of narrative here, two threads of description here that we should seek to separate the one from the other and try to preserve a certain distance between the necessary details. This was its fashion while Saruman was at his height, accounted by many the chief of wizards. A great ring wall of stone like towering cliffs stood out from the shelter of the mountainside. Okay. So this ring wall of stone comes out from the mountainside, this, this basic circle of, of the barrier to Isengard. As is clear, this is part of the original construction. This is not Saruman. This, the, the wonderful doors which balance the tunnel into Isengard itself, 
Saruman did not build these. These are not works of his craft. These are works of the ancient Numenorians. This was what Orthanc was long before Saruman ever came here, right? This was this, this wall, this tunnel, these gates, this tower. These things existed back when the interior of Isengard was beautiful. Um, once it had been green and filled with avenues and groves of fruitful trees watered by streams that flowed from the mountains to a lake, but no thing, no green thing grew there in the latter days of Saruman. And then we pivot out. The road was paved with stone flags, dark and hard. By implication, the road had not always been paved with, with stone flags, dark and hard. Beside their borders, instead of trees, there marched long lines of pillars, some of marble, some of copper and of iron, joined by heavy chains. So we're seeing here not just the... Not just the, the devastation of the natural world within the bowl of Isengard, but the almost the, the satire of that natural world, right? These pillars joined together with chains, what is the purpose of that? What possible purpose could they serve except to delineate the road, which in this instance doesn't need delineating because it's a road of, of hard, flat flagstones. And this calls back to the previous slide, of course, when we're approaching Isengard, when we're looking out on Nankurinir, they're nestled in the, the, beneath the shadow of the, the southern spur of the Misty Mountains here. Remember, we get the account of the road, but we don't ride on the road. We ride on the grass beside the road. Why do we ride on the grass beside the road? Because the horses, the, the horses of the Rohirrim probably aren't shod, right? They're probably natural hoofs. They're not used to dealing with roads and dealing with harder surfaces. So the wear of traveling on the road would be itself destructive. I honestly don't know if the, if the horses of the Rohirrim are shod or not, but certainly they're more accustomed to riding over the grasslands than they are on these, these fashioned roads of artifice. This is artificial. Um, okay, I'm a little short on time, so we're actually going to skip to the very end of this. Um, oh, Seastar says, Here the narrative really expands beyond the perspectives of the people arriving, and now to the way it has been in the distant and recent past, covering the descriptions and the thoughts of Saruman and others. Absolutely the thoughts of Saruman, right? Look at this last this last paragraph here, this, this beautiful thing. Oh, actually, okay, before we get to this, I did mention this back when we were first talking about Saruman and Isengard and Orthanc, the fact that the meaning of Orthanc has, is, 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 is in two parts, right? Uh, this was Orthanc, the citadel of Saruman, the name of which had, by design or chance, the intrusion of the professor's voice here, making a philological joke at this point, it warms my heart. I just love this. This was Orthanc, the citadel of Saruman, the name of which had, by design or chance, uh, both, probably, both, professor, because you designed the Elvish language and you and kind of stumbled into the, uh, the Anglo-Saxon Rohiric language here. For in the Elvish speech, Orthanc signifies Mount Fang, but in the language of the mark of old, the cunning mind, right? So it means both of these things simultaneously in languages which Tolkien is at least partly responsible for. So by design or chance, I see Tolkien kind of acknowledging there with a kind of, of self-effacing shrug. Ha, yeah. Worked out pretty well, didn't it? Worked out pretty well. Okay. Then let's, yes. Orthanc, a bilingual pun, says Variag of Khan. Yes, good, good. Um, Bingo Baggins, right, yes. Are, are, we, are we just talking about older names here? This is wonderful. Um, good, good. Yes, yes. Uh, um, Logan is asking, does anyone here know Cinderin? Maybe it was an accident that it had a double meaning. Um, I believe that it was actually the other way around. I believe that it was named for, it was named in Cinderin and then it was discovered by Tolkien that basically he had had made a pun in Anglo-Saxon, which is, I think is pretty good, or in Old English, which I really like. Um, Bingo Baggins says Lynn. Yes, there are a couple. Uh, Bingo is particularly, the, the, the name of Bilbo Baggins, uh, uh, yes, the name of Frodo Baggins, excuse me, in The Lord of the Rings, the name of the protagonist of The Lord of the Rings 
was originally for a long time Bingo Baggins, despite the fact that bingo was already, you know, a word, that, that it was an American word, which Tolkien presumably had heard, but it was still, you know, morphologically consistent with what he had done in the languages of the Shire. So he thought that it was perfectly acceptable. And of course, when we get to the Silmarillion, we're going to get to talk about Tyrion upon Tuna because he just uses the word Tuna as a place name in, in Cinderin for a long time there. It's pretty great. Okay. Yes, Bingo was already his name, says Becca Eller. Perfect. Excellent. Okay. Let's uh, look at this last paragraph, though, because this last paragraph is where the good stuff really is. This is where it happens. A strong place and wonderful was Isengard, and long had it been beautiful, and there great lords had dwelt, the wardens of Gondor upon the west, and wise men that watched the stars. So it is a place of guard, yes, but unlike Minas Tirith, it is not just a tower of guard. It is more than that. It is already, you know, in Elvish speech, Orthanc signifies Mount Fang in the language of the Mark of Old, the cunning mind, right? This was already a place of, of cunning, a place of, of defense and severity, yes, but also a place of thought and of wisdom, unified here in the figure of Saruman. But Saruman had slowly shaped it to his shifting purposes and made it better as he thought being deceived. Okay, the narrator here taking quite a firm line. The narrator here kind of echoing the words of Gandalf, I think, a little bit here. The narrator leaving us in no doubt at all as to what Saruman's ultimate purpose has been. You know, he slowly shaped it to his shifting purposes and made it better, as he thought, being deceived, right? Progress, if progress you call it. For all those arts and subtle devices for which he forsook his former wisdom and which fondly he imagined were his own came but from Mordor. So originally, Saruman was actually wise. Originally, he really was a good guy. Originally, he really was of the Astari. He was like Gandalf. He came to Middle-earth to fight the good fight against Saruman. But he set aside his wisdom. He forsook his own former wisdom for arts and subtle devices. Subtle here meaning treacherous and cunning, right? He has set aside his real wisdom for the analysis of the thing. He has, has broken the thing and left the path of wisdom. And that th those arts and subtle devices that he imagines are his own come but from Mordor. So that what he made was not only a little copy, a child's model or a slave's flattery of that vast fortress, armory, prison, furnace of great power, Barador, the dark tower, which suffered no rival and laughed at flattery, biding its time, secure in its pride and its immeasurable strength. So Saruman is here a rival to, to Sauron, right? Uh, one of the, the Gandalf will we'll talk about this later, in fact, in, the, in next week's reading. Saruman's still a rival, not a servant, not a slave, not even really an ally of Sauron. Orthanc, not a sister tower to Barador, but a rival to Barador here. And Sauron believes that this is true. He believes that in his, in his subtleness and in, in his capability, he has managed to carve for himself some independence from Sauron, a, a functional alliance, perhaps, but no more than that. But here the narrator is absolutely clear. What he made was not only a little copy, a child's model or a slave's flattery of the vast fortress Barador, which suffered no rival and laughed at flattery, biding its time. So we're already clear here that, that Saruman is not in any way a power unto himself. I mean, he is physically a power unto himself, even magically a power unto himself. But in terms of the greater conflict here between light and dark, between good and evil, between, you know, the alliance of men and elves and dwarves in this last and desperate time against the shadow, Sar uh, Saruman is firmly on the side of the, of the shadow. He is not, not actually walking this independent path that he seems to be walking. Again, all of this foreshadowing for next week. Um... 
Yes, Joseph says, I'm, fi I'm finding the idea that Saruman is deluded about, I'm finding the idea that Saruman is deluded about his own originality really compelling, right? This is one of the key ideas of evil. Evil is self-destructive, as we discussed earlier, but evil is also creatively bankrupt. Evil cannot create because evil is disconnected from the actual creative spark, the actual creative light, right? Evil cannot cannot render a new thing. It can only recreate. And the irony here, which is really great for those of us who have read the, the Silmarillion and those of us who understand the deep legendarium of Tolkien here, the irony here is that we're not just talking about Saruman. Saruman is creating Orthanc here in, in parodic mimicry of Barad-dûr. But hey, you know what Barad-dûr looks like? Sauron is doing the same thing looking back at Melkor, looking back at Morgoth, right? He too is engaged in this kind of, of lesser replication. And so we see that in its way, evil too is diminishing and dwindling as we move toward the modern age. That, that all the great myth, all the great power of the world, capital P, capital W, power of the world, is diminishing. Nothing now is as great as it used to be. Nothing now is as, as immense or as dimensional as it used to be. We are living in a lesser time, a more mundane time. Okay. Um, good, good. Yes, as Seastar says, quoting, which fondly he imagined were his own. That's how I felt about my writings after I started reading Sheenan. Uh, Sheenan? I'm not sure how I'm pronouncing that. Sheenan McGuire, Poor Delusional Sarma. You know, I think we've all had that moment where we find a, a writer that we really love and then start echoing their work, or we find a, you know, a, a photographer that we really love and start echoing the work. Yes. Seanan. Seanan. I do apologize, Seastar. Okay, yes. <laughs> Uh, Joseph says, Middle Earth is such a hipster's paradise. The original tower was way better. The cover blows. Yeah. You know what? A little bit, right? But through through repetition, it's like everything. That, every next generation is like a photocopy of the previous generation and just a little bit more worn, a little bit sadder. Well, not quite. Not quite. There is still heroism in the world. The blood of Numenor still runs true. We'll talk more about that as we move to it. Oh, um, I did want to say, actually, before we move on to this next slide, that uh, it is as our heroes reach Isengard, March the 5th. The Fellowship was broken on February the 26th, which means that the whole of Book 3 has played out in 10 days, from February the 26th to March the 5th. Are any of you seeing the problem here? Are any of you seeing uh, like the math here holding up? February 26th to March the 5th, 10 days? Well, it is 10 days. It's not 10 days in our calendar, of course, but it is 10 days in Tolkien's calendar, his uh, Shire Reckoning calendar, at least, because the Shire Reckoning calendar has 12 months, each of which has exactly 30 days. So in the Shire Reckoning calendar, February 2 has 30 days in it. There are also three extra days of holiday in the summer, which don't count toward the months, basically. I think it is between, uh, between June and July. There are three days of holiday, which aren't either June or July, they are, are set aside. And then in the winter, there are either two or some years, three extra holidays uh, between uh, December and January. So that's where that falls in, in the workings of the hobbits here. So February 26th to March 5th, the entire book has unfolded in 10 days. The first book, Fellowship of the Ring, by contrast, so Frodo left Bag End on September the 23rd, and the Fellowship reached Parth Gallon on February the 25th. So the Fellowship of the Ring takes 170 days. So when we talk about the slowing of the pace of this novel, now, yes, admittedly, we have only covered half of the two towers, but the back half of the two towers takes place mostly at the same time as the front half of the two towers, so this is pretty much where it's going to be. The, the, the Fellowship of the Ring covers 170 days, the two towers covers 10 days. 
or at least the first half of the two towers. We'll talk more about that, uh, about Frodo and Sam's side of the story when we get to it in just a few weeks. Yes. Um, uh, we should all adopt the Hobbit calendar. Sounds efficient, says Ty. Doesn't it? Isn't that great? I was just thinking about this this morning because I was looking it up and kind of trying to figure out exactly how it worked and, and, and where this inspiration came from. And it is just clean. It is just so simple. 12 months of 30 days plus three holiday days in the middle of summer and two or in a leap year, three holiday days at like New Year. That's actually perfect. That's like actually perfect. That's a really good system, you guys. Mathematically very easy. So, yeah. Yes. Um, how long did Helm's Deep take then, says Angela? Uh, a day. A day, basically, for Helm's Deep. Yes, it all happens very, very fast. Um, yeah, Jackie's saying, doesn't the fellowship cover years from beginning to end? Yes, that's why I said it, it's, it's uh, what is it, 170 days from Frodo leaving Bag End. But yes, if we're, if we're taking all of the Fellowship of the Ring, then it's much, much more than that. It's an, an additional... I don't actually know how long passes between the first and second chapters of the, of the Lord of the Rings, but it's, yeah, I mean, the 17 years, right, from the unexpected party to Frodo leaving, uh, yeah, it, it's many, many years, 25 years, yeah, good, okay, let's push on here to our uh, to our uh, return, our, our welcome from Hobbits, right, this is our uh, reconnection here between old friends. Welcome, my lords, to Isengard, he said. We are the Door Wardens. Mariadic, son of Saradoc, is my name, and my companion, who, alas, is overcome with weariness, here he gave the other a dig with his foot, is Peregrine, son of Paladin of the House of Took. Far in the north is our home. The Lord Saruman is within, but at the moment he is closeted with one worm tongue, or doubtless he would be here to welcome such honorable guests. Doubtless he would, laughed Gandalf. And was it Saruman that ordered you to guard his damaged doors and watch for the arrival of guests, when your attention could be spared from plate and bottle? No, good sir, the matter escaped him, answered Mary gravely. He has been much occupied. Our orders came from Treebeard, who has taken over the management of Isengard. He commanded me to welcome the Lord of Rohan with fitting words. I have done my best. And, wh and what of your companions? What about Legolas and me? cried Gimli, unable to contain himself longer. You rascals! You bully-footed and wool-pated truants! A fine hunt you've led us! Two hundred leagues through fen and forest, battle and death to rescue you, and here we find you feasting and idling and smoking! Smoking! Where did you come by the weed, you villains? Hammer and tongs, I'm so torn between rage and joy that if I do not burst it will be a marvel! You speak for me, Gimli, laughed Legolas, though I would sooner learn how they came by the wine. One thing you have not found in your hunting, and that's brighter wits, said Pippin, opening an eye. Here you find us sitting on the field of victory amid the plunder of armies, and you wonder how we came by a few well-earned comforts. Well-earned, said Gimli. I cannot believe that. The riders laughed. It cannot be doubted that we witnessed the meeting of dear friends, said Theoden. So these are the lost ones of your company, Gandalf. The days are fated to be filled with marvels. Already I have seen many since I left my house, and now here before my eyes stand yet another of the folk of legend. Are not these the halflings, the same among us... Excuse me, that some among us call the whole the whole bitlin. Hobbits, if you please, Lord, said Pippin. Hobbits, said Theoden. Your tongue is strangely changed, but the name sounds not unfitting, so. Hobbits. No report that I have heard does justice to the truth. Mary bowed, and Pippin got up and bowed low. Your gracious Lord. Or I hope that I may so take your words, he said. And here is another marvel. I have wandered in many lands since I left my home, and never till now have I have found people that knew any story concerning hobbits. Isn't this great? Amid the marvels of the Ants and Isengard and Saruman and Gandalf and the Clash of Kingdoms and everything that's happening here, everything that has happened to us. Oh, did I mention we were abducted by orcs? That happened. And then we met a tree that was walking around. That was pretty exciting. But hey, speaking of marvels, you've heard of us. Isn't that cool? I love this exchange so much. Welcome, my lords, to Isengard. We are the Door Wardens. Mariadic, son of Saradoc, is my name. And my companion, who alas is overcome with weariness, is Peregrine, son of Paladin of the House of Took. 
Mary has absolutely been working on his, uh, his welcoming speech here. I just love it. Yes, Ty says, so let me get this right. The men of Rohan can't remember their own history or ants, but they know halflings. Well, let's remember that the halflings are not so far separated from the men of Rohan as, as uh, the ants are, at least. And I wonder to what degree King Theoden has been thinking of his childhood songs as he rides out. I wonder if you had said to King Theoden back at Edoras, hey, so you heard of halflings? He would say, no, don't be absurd. There's no such thing. But I wonder to what degree he's been thinking of those old childhood songs as he's been writing. I wonder to what degree the men of Rohan have been singing childhood songs as they've been writing out to Isengard, on the road to Isengard. Yes. Um, let me see here. Yes, uh, Shane says, it's neat to see how Mary takes to Theoden now that we know the Shire cult- the Shire's cultural memory and Rohan's cultural memory work similarly. That's a really great point, right? There is a connection between the Rohirrim and the, the, the folk of the Shire in that they too are kind of, A, disconnected from their past. They forged a new kingdom not that long ago. Thank you very much. Longer for the Shire, obviously. You know, we're in... Uh, what are we in? Uh, 1400 of Shire Reckoning? I forget now because I've always I'm, I've forced myself to transplant to uh, 1600 of Shire Reckoning because I forced myself to transplant to, to Third Age Reckoning. Um, so yes, but still, uh, the dim and distant past is is a little interest to them. That's very good. Um, Joseph says, I think Theoden is just pretending now, sick of seeming ignorant all the time. Well, I might be tempted to agree with you there, Joseph, if not for his use of the word Holbitlin, right? Holbitlin that becomes hobbits. Holbitlin means hole burrowers it means the diggers of holes right the dwellers in holes so there is a rohiric word that clearly means hobbits right and as he says hobbits said theoden your tongue is strangely changed but the name sounds not unfitting so hobbits hobbitlin hobbits we see now where that word comes from in in tolkien's creation yeah i think he's uh I think he's pretty good. Um, Aomer and his writers previously didn't seem to recognize the description of hobbits. That's a good point from Seastar there. Yes, good, good. Excellent. All right. Uh, what is this in Third Age Reckoning, says uh, Logan, 3015, 3018 by this point. We are, uh, yes, March the 5th, 3018 at this point. Okay, um, <clears throat> so let's talk a little about, uh, well, let's Let's talk about names, right? Let's talk about the register that Mary is in when he gives this introduction. Mariadic, son of Saradoc, is my name, and my companion, who alas is overcome with weariness, is Peregrine, son of Paladin of the House of Took. I am Mary Brandybuck, and this is my my buddy Pippin Took, right? Uh, this is um, it, it should be cleaner than this, but he's deliberately made it more more formal for exactly the reason as we make names more formal, right? This is exactly the same as we got right at the beginning of this, this chapter, where we have, you know, King Theoden and Gandalf the White and Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and Legolas the Elf, and Mariadic, son of Saradoc, is my name. Peregrine, son of Paladin of the House of Took, far in the north is our home. This is just gorgeous. Um, so Saradoc is the anglicized version of the Welsh Caradoc, who was a, uh, he's a fictional knight in Arthurian myth, in some versions of Arthurian myth, but he was also a real-life writer who wrote a history of St. Gildas and is thought to be the first person to associate King Arthur with Glastonbury. So he absolutely, Caradoc, that becomes through the anglicization process here for the purposes of this passage, Saradoc. Uh, actual real life and mythical, uh, real life and fictional figure associated with the myths of King Arthur, and of course, Peregrine, son of Paladin. Now, when Tolkien wrote this this scene, 
no one would have known the word paladin. Like, that is not a common word in English back in the middle of the 20th century. But thanks to Gary Gygax, and thanks to the host of writers who came along after Tolkien, and kind of plundered Tolkien's works, and plundered Dungeons and Dragons, and, and kind of formalized our conventions of modern Western fantasy, paladin is now, of course, a fairly familiar word. What is a, par a paladin? Well, a paladin is a knight errant, right? A paladin is a chivalric hero in the, in the quasi-Arthurian Western European tradition. But paladin simply means, originally, it enters English in the late 16th century, it simply means one of the 12 knights in attendance on Charlemagne. It's basically Charlemagne's personal guard. This, by the way, reminds me of a point that I meant to make earlier and somehow failed to make. You remember when we saw that Hama had died? The, back in the Battle of Helm's Deep, Hama had died and he was set aside in a little burial mound all his own. Do you remember why he was set aside in a little burial mound all of his own? Because he was captain of the king's guard. When Hama introduces himself to our, our heroes as they show up at Edoras for the first time, he introduces himself simply as the door warden. Hama is a brilliantly humble man, a, a brilliantly kind of, of low-key Rohiric hero here. I just, I, I, I love that so much. That's a tiny little incidental detail that I meant to mention at the time and didn't. But anyway, there we are. So um, Paladin enters, uh, enters English because it means one of the 12 knights in attendance on Charlemagne, but it just means, you know, a, a warrior coming from uh, the Italian Paladino. This is one of the, uh, the, the rare instances of a fairly modern romance language word showing up in Tolkien's work, but it shows up here in the form of a name. So it's a name which is morphologically consistent with the Shire names that we get. Paladin actually doesn't sit uncomfortably alongside Peregrine. You know, just if, if you forget about the deeper meanings and you just pay attention to the shape and the sound of the words, they, they, they fit together quite nicely. But the fact that it means warrior, I mean, Paladin Took was striding around the Shire just a few short years ago. I mean, yes, he specifically was, but he didn't perhaps live up to what we would consider the... the the tradition, the heritage of the name Paladin took, but it's a nice little pun here that we're recasting it as warrior, right? So Mariadic, son of Saradoc, I am Mary, son of an Arthurian knight, and this is my buddy Pippin, son of Paladin, one of the knights of Charlemagne. Like, that's, that's really, really nice. I love that. I should say also, incidentally, this is incredibly nerdy. This is incredibly nerdy, you guys. Um, Mariadic Brandybuck, I'm going to ruin this for you now. Mariatic Brandybuck has the same catalectic trachaic tetrameter structure that Alexander Hamilton has. If you are singing Alexander Hamilton, you know, from Hamilton, you can also sing in place of Alexander Hamilton, Mariatic Brandybuck. And it works pretty well. I'm just, I'm kind of keeping a mental Rolodex of all names that have that, that <laughs> odd structure. I like it a lot. By all means, go and write a, a Hamilton parody now of, uh, of, uh, of, of Mary Addict's story, of Mary's story here. Okay, so this is our last, uh, moving on to our last slide. I have like a couple minutes here. Let's do what I can. Okay. Um, oh, we're, we're clarifying now. Oh, 1319 now. Yes. Okay, good, good, good. Um, excellent. Good. All right. Yes. Uh, Logan there confirming the, uh, Logan there confirming the, uh, the, um, the dates that we're dealing with here. Okay, good. Um, Let's see here. Uh, so Shane says, I want to scroll back to see what Lily is asking. Okay. Um, oh, Lily's asking about, about Edoras. Okay. I'll, I'll delve into that more clearly if I can uh, after it. Yes. Okay. Good. Excellent. All right. Let's do this. Um, with our final slide. And is Orthanc then left unguarded? Asked Gandalf. There is the water, said Mary, but Quickbeam and some others are watching it. Not all those posts and pillars on the plain are of Saruman's planting. Quickbeam, I think, is by the rock, near the foot of the stair. 
Yes, a tall gray ant is there, said Legolas, but his arms are at his sides, and he stands as still as a door tree. It is past noon, said Gandalf, and we at any rate have not eaten since early morning. Yet I wish to see Treebeard as soon as may be. Did he leave me no message, or has plate and bottle driven it from your mind? He left a message, said Mary, and I was coming to it, but I have been hindered by many other questions. I was to say that if the Lord of the Mark and Gandalf will ride to the northern wall, they will find Treebeard there, and he will welcome them. I may add that they will also find food of the best there. It was discovered and selected by your humble servants. He bowed. Gandalf laughed. That is better, he said. Well, Theoden, will you ride with me to find Treebeard? We must go round about, but it is not far. When you see Treebeard, you will learn much, for Treebeard is Fangorn, and the eldest and chief of the Ents. And when you speak with him, you will hear the speech of the oldest of all living things. I will come with you, said Theoden. Farewell, my hobbits. May we meet again in my house. There you shall sit beside me and tell me of your heart's desire, the deeds of your grandsires as far as you can reckon them, and we will speak also of Tobald the Old and his herb lore. Farewell. The hobbits bowed low. So that's the king of Rohan, said Pippin in an undertone. Fine old fellow. Very polite. A great cap on the uh, chapter here. Okay, I think we're going to leave our discussion of this until next time because I absolutely have to, to wrap up. <laughs> Joseph's quoting, do you want to meet an ant? Uh... Yeah, I want to meet an ant. Yeah, that's exactly how it goes. All right, I really have to tap out now because it is time. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. We will circle back around to the slide next time, I promise. We'll, uh, we'll have some more discussion of Isengard and all that there is here, uh, and I will try to take a look at these questions. Um, okay, let me see what I can do. Is there ever, uh, Ty asks, is there ever a textual reason given for Aragorn's gift for foresight, or should we just take it at face value? He's a king. He's a king. Kings know stuff. Kings know stuff when they're kings. That's pretty much how it works. It is not just that he is of Numenorian blood and Numenorian descent, but it is because he is the rightful heir. And foresight is traditionally, and in medieval culture, one of the, the virtues associated with kings because they are closer to God, right? Because kings are, are divinely appointed and thus are, are empowered to see more clearly and more truly. Um, let me see. Uh, Logan's referencing the uh, the German translation. Yes, I read an article a while back. I will try and find it about the German translation of The Lord of the Rings. If I can find it, I will add it to the show notes for the podcast version and, and I'll tweet it out. Yes, good. Um, <laughs> okay, let's make this the last one. As Ty asks... Uh, Oh, okay. No, uh, Joseph is asking, are you really doing a Christmas carol as the schedule suggests, or was that just a cruel, vindictive prank targeted at me personally? Also, please, can we do the amazing Patrick Stewart adaptation? Uh, I don't think I'm going to have time to, to talk about the Patrick Stewart adaptation of A Christmas Carol, but I am producing A Christmas Carol. Between This is not going to be an analysis uh, podcast. I'm not going to be talking about the, A Christmas Carol. I'm going to be reading A Christmas Carol for you all between Christmas and New Year. So for that five days, Monday to Friday, I think that week, I'm going to be releasing one stave of, of A Christmas Carol. I should actually, this makes a lot of sense now that you mention it i should definitely do a podcast talking about a christmas carol too because i love that so much it's such a fantastic piece of work so that will be between christmas and new year and ty is asking what should the ship name for the bromance of legolas and gimli be i will leave that as an exercise for the reader at home guys thank you so much for joining me thank you so much for your insight and your wisdom i will join you all again next week oh in fact let me show you the slide here before i give up entirely here is our slide for the rest, uh, for next week's session. Book 3, chapters 9 and 10, Flotsam and Jetsam and the Voice of Saruman, 10 p.m. Eastern, next Thursday. That's December the 14th, 2017. So next week, we finish up all of book 3. We have chapters 9 and 10. That takes us to the end of book 3. That takes us to the halfway point in the Two Towers. Then the following week, the week before the Christmas break, we're going to have a general Q&A about the Two Towers. We're going to talk about what book 3 has done, what its focus has been, and obviously we'll, we'll get a chance to answer some of these questions in more depth there too. Thank you all so much for joining me. I will talk to you all again very soon. Until then, take care. Bye guys. Bye.